Twitter. I'm Isaac Fitzgerald. He is Saeed Jones. It's Thursday, and you America, are... you in danger, girl. That's the name of our <laughs> show now. Yeah, that's... You know what show you watching. Yeah. But truly, y'all, what is going on? What the hell is going on? Uh, I don't know. I really Yeah, don't. and that's the thing, is there's a lot of questions and not a ton of answers out there right now. Listen, we are going to be talking about the latest updates with the bomb scare in just a moment. But let us, amidst this wild news cycle, just, like, reflect on what's happened in the last day. Isn't this crazy? Isn't this bizarre? Mm-hmm. I, I, it I'm is. A, it, it's it, scary. It is. And it's important to say that out loud, because... We were talking about how we felt about this all yesterday, and there is almost a numbness that is happening. Yeah. It's not like, oh, wow, what a wild news yeah. cycle. It's like people are being sent explosive devices, and like, yeah, it's, it's both scary, but at the same time, there's a numbness to I can't it. help but feel like in a week we're going to forget about this the way we've forgotten about, or, you know, not forgotten about, but had to move on from so many significant, seemingly game-changing history-changing news stories. I mean, remember the New York Times story about Trump's tax returns? Like, that was only, what, a week or so ago? And let's talk about a story that broke yesterday, okay? New York Times broke a story that was basically like, Russia and China are almost certainly spying on Trump's personal cell phones. His security advisors are like, don't talk on them. And he's just ignoring their advice. Then later in that same piece, those same security advisors kind of on background are like, just for the record, we don't worry about it too much because he doesn't really pay attention in the uh, security intel meetings. <laughs> and that's just, that's just, that's just gonna it's float on by. It's a lot. That would dominate the news cycle for at least a yeah. day in any other year but 2018. Right, and so this is, this is the work of not just literally working in news, but reading and, and being a citizen right now is having to process all of this. To say nothing of the fact, of course, that journalists um, are having bombs mailed to their workplaces and journalists like Jamal Khashoggi are being killed. Like all of this is happening while we have a president who insists on continuing to refer to the press as the enemy of the people. Like it's all happening. I'm shaken. There are other news stories like a I'm shooting shooken. in Kentucky. Yeah. There's so much going on, yeah. but. Our thoughts are with y'all, because it's a lot, y'all. Okay, to that point, uh, Jill Abramson published a new essay in The Guardian. I think everyone should read. She notes, the worst aspect of America's bomb scares, their air of inevitability. Woo! And she she really synthesizes it it all. It feels inevitable. I think that's where part of that numbness we're kind of talking about is it's almost like, this should be so surprising, but I'm not surprised by it. And news of explosive devices continues to pour in this morning. Here's the latest. A suspicious package reportedly addressed to Joe Biden has been intercepted at a mail facility. BuzzFeed News reporter Tasneem Nashrullah, has been, who has been tirelessly following this story overnight, joins us now. Uh, good morning, Tasneem. Good morning, guys. All right, so what do we know at this point about the explosive device sent to Vice President Joe Biden? So there aren't many details uh, coming through right now. We do know that uh, there is law enforcement activity at a postal facility in Delaware. Uh, Multiple media uh, outlets have reported that it has been addressed to Joe Biden. There were also photos of the suspicious package that was reportedly addressed to Joe Biden. We don't know yet if there is a sort of explosive device inside it, but at this point, it does seem to have a lot of similarities with the other packages uh, that, w- that was sent. Okay, let's talk about those other packages. Do we know, like, how many targets have there been? Who's been targeted? We're right. talking about Joe Biden right now, but earlier this morning, I know news of Robert De Niro broke. Like, 
who's on this list? That's right. So I so far, I think it has been eight suspicious packages have been found with nine targets. Um, so it first started with, obviously, uh, the Democratic donor, George Soros. Uh, then it was uh, uh, Bill and Hillary Clinton, uh, Barack Obama. Uh, there were two packages uh, sent to um, Representative Maxine Waters, um, Attorney General, um, former Attorney General Eric Holder which was care of uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, because apparently all the packages have a return address for um, Debbie Wasserman Schultz. And um, yes, this morning, um, it was Robert, actor Robert De Niro, a package was sent to his office in Manhattan. Okay. Which, and yeah. Joe Biden. Yeah, and yeah. Joe Biden as well. Um, I know, I mean, I, I guess it's still very early and, and investigations are, are just getting underway in the last... Uh, you know, uh, day or so. But at this point, uh, do we know if the FBI and the Secret Service, as they investigate, any sense of suspects for this? We do not. Um, I don't know if they have had any. They haven't said that they that they have any suspects. Um, obviously, it's it's sort of a nationwide manhunt for this individual or individuals. Um, there is an ongoing investigation by FBI and, and other federal agencies. But as of now, um, they haven't said if they've found any suspects. All right, and what do we know about the bombs themselves? How big are they? How much damage could they have done? So what we know is that they were uh, pipe bombs, which are basically improvised explosive devices. They're sort of very crudely devised. Um, we actually don't know how dangerous or viable they, uh, they are. Um, they've been described as sort of being built with a six-inch um, PVC pipe that was filled with shards of glass and uh, pyrotechnic powder. And um, some of them had like this digital clock timer attached on the middle of the pipe, which is more something that you would see in a movie as opposed to something that's really necessary in real life. Um, law enforcement uh, has said that they don't know yet how dangerous or viable these are. Although um, the one that was sent uh, to the CNN offices in uh, New York uh, that was addressed to uh, former CI director John Brennan, that was described as a live explosive device. Um, right now, these uh, bombs have been sent to um, uh, the Quantico's, um, the FBI's Quantico lab to be analyzed. So right now, we don't know how viable they were. They, they might have been sort of... Um, made to look like explosive devices. But as of now, um, we, we don't know how dangerous or viable they were. And, and Tasneem, um, of course, we look at your tweets uh, in the morning uh, always, but especially when we're getting ready to talk to you. And it seems like you've had an interesting 24 hours. So I did want to ask you, you know, what has your experience, your work experience been like uh, covering this particular story? Oh, uh, <laughs> where do I start? Um, so when the news first came in of, um, you know, the bombs being sent to uh, Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama, we thought, OK, you know, that's bad. It would probably stop there. But then the news kept on coming, kept on coming. So there was like not a minute where I wasn't sort of updating the story with new information about all these reports coming in. Um, there were also like some false reports about a uh, bomb being sent to the address to the White House and, you know, which we had to like sort of uh, verify. Um, so there was a lot of misinformation. Um, it's It's been a lot. And then um, 
you know, at the end of the day, I was exhausted, obviously, from covering this. But um, I get a, I get an email from someone saying um, the subject was bombs. And is it like, and the email said, is it one of your relatives, this name? And I was like, really? I, I, I don't need this right now. You know, and then we thought like, maybe it stopped last night. But this morning, again, there have already been um, two suspicious packages. So you know, as um, the New York governor, Andrew Cuomo, said that he we definitely expect more and more suspicious packages, yeah. reports of suspicious packages to come in. And Tasneem, we saw that tweet that, and you can go to our timeline to check it out. That was a horrific email, and I'm sorry that you had to deal with that. One last question before we let you go. Trump had a rally in Wisconsin last night. How did he respond to all this? So initially, uh, yesterday, when the first few reports came in, he didn't really say anything, which is surprising because he's very quick to, um, you know, put his take on Twitter. But uh, the White House and other sort of Trump officials, including his daughter, Ivanka Trump, put out statements condemning these acts, condemning these threats. Finally, he was at a conference where he sort of called on the country to unify and, you know, condemned uh, these acts and said, we have no place for uh, political violence in our country. Um, So that was fine. And then he had his rally in Wisconsin, which, uh, you know, he he started off with disavowing political violence, but immediately he went to his, you know, usual thing of blaming the media for hostility, for, you know, the anger and the divisiveness in the country saying it's because of the media's like false reporting, which was obviously received by huge cheers from his rally crowd. Um, and it, it's surprising because CNN was one of the places that was targeted with the with the pipe bomb. And to take this occasion to blame the media was probably not a good move. Mm. Not a good move. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Tasneem, and good luck with your reporting today. Thank you. Thanks, Tasneem. Um, we have a tweet here um, to that point about the president um, and his rally last night. Mark Noller, you tweeted this quote from uh, Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders. You guys continue to focus only on the negative. Press Secretary tells reporters about their coverage of Trump during exchange in the White House driveway just this morning, uh, just before the show started. She said 90 percent of media focus on the president is negative. And first thing CNN did was to accuse President Trump of being responsible for bomb devices. So just another component that shows how the Trump administration is responding to these bomb scares. Responding to these bomb scares. We say it on this show all the time. Words have meanings. Words have power. Yeah. Well, that's the facts for now. Uh, Let's talk about the misinformation. Uh, Here's a tweet from BuzzFeed News reporter Blake Montgomery. Twitter is promoting hashtag fake bomb scare and hashtag fake bombs, which are both full of conspiracy theories alongside hashtag bomb scare, which is also full of conspiracy theories, but at least isn't flagrantly false. Blake Montgomery joins us now. Good morning, Blake. Good morning, Isaac. How are you guys doing? We're doing all right. Uh, So what are the conspiracy theories and misinformation that you're seeing on Twitter? So the biggest one is that these pipe bombs are a plot by Democrats to to gin up sympathy and boost voter turnout because we're only 12 days from the midterm elections. There is so that like the idea is basically that Democrats mailed themselves the bombs or somebody on that side is doing that. Um, There is obviously no basis. In fact, we have no idea who's sending these bombs as the investigation is ongoing. Wow. Um, Twitter 
in some ways, I think, uh, is a good source of uh, breaking news. I mean, there's certainly with things like this, the bomb scares where it's just moving so quickly, um, it's helpful in contrast to perhaps waiting for like an article to be published, right, when following these breaking news stories. But we also have to own Twitter has become a mess um, and it's toxic often and there's a lot of misinformation. How did we get to this point? Or rather, how are both of these things true for Twitter at once? <laughs> I mean, the people who use Twitter are on both sides of that divide. There are journalists who are trying to vet the information that they get and promote verifiable facts. And then there are people who, I mean, even yesterday, people, right-wing commentators with like name brand recognition, like Ann Coulter, Candace Owens, and James Woods, all these verified people with hundreds and hundreds of thousands of followers are promoting the idea that this is not a real thing that happened, um, especially since there have been some reports that the bombs were not live themselves. These people are seizing on it. I was just looking at another new hashtag today, fake bombgate. Um, and so the people who are using Twitter are on both sides of this divide and they both have really strong, they re really large fan bases, um, journalists who are trying to promote facts and people who aren't. And so, and that's a very good point, right? It is an issue with Twitter as a platform. It is also an issue with the people that contribute to Twitter with false facts. Mm. I do want to ask, though, did you speak to anyone at Twitter? Uh, do they have any game plan for handling this? Yeah, so a company spokesperson directed me to the company's FAQs, which say that trending is algorithmically determined by who you follow and what they're engaging with. So people I follow are evidently insane um, and are promoting hashtag fake bomb gate and fake bombs and stuff like that alongside the less aggressively false bomb scare. Um, but there's also something in the FAQs that says if uh, we may we may like stop something from trending because we want to promote healthy conversations is what the page says. So this trending topics, which is one of the most widely used pages on Twitter, does have human oversight. Um, it's unclear who was looking at hashtag bomb scare to weed out things, if anybody. If anybody. Um, and I did want to ask, I know also it's very early in San Francisco. I literally see it's like dark in the windows <laughs> behind you. So thank you for being in the office early this morning. Um, from your perspective as a tech reporter, and you, you were kind of alluding to this already, but what can Twitter do? Are there levers that we know of already that they can pull uh, to kind of deal with these kinds of situations? In breaking news situations, I mean, Twitter says this on that FAQ page, that there is human oversight. The question of is just where is it in such a, this is a national news situation. Like no one doesn't know what's happening at this point if they have opened Twitter. Um, so where that human oversight is in this particular case is a good question. Twitter didn't answer it. Um, and so... Yeah, I think it would be that human oversight, someone looking at it to say this is obviously and this is obviously false and meant only to promote conspiracy theories. Hashtag bomb scare may be co-opted by people who want to spread misinformation, but hashtag fake bomb scare was only ever designed to do that. Yeah, wow. and that's, I mean, human oversight, especially coming from a company when you reached out to them, said, check out our Frequently Asked Questions page. <laughs> Blake, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Wow. Thanks, um, guys.
<laughs> we have a, a tweet here from Alex Q, and it's so exhausting these days trying to keep up and so scary, frankly, to be a journalist in the world. Uh, agreed. Uh, but to that point, Alex and friends, um, I got to tell you, it says a lot that mm. even with all of this happening, I mean, pipe bombs being mailed all over the country and, and, and all of the anxiety and fear incited by that, we still have enough energy left over to talk about Megyn Kelly. We do. We, indeed, I have the time. I'm just <laughs> saying the president's cell phone's being tapped. Um, that news, maybe not cutting yeah. through through this story, but Megyn Kelly, that sure is something people have time to talk about. Yeah, and, and here's the thing. There is there is very little under the sun that Megyn Kelly at this point can do deep into her career. Uh, that would surprise me, particularly in terms of race and, and racism, but I am surprised that this hasn't blown over, and I think she's surprised too. Absolutely. Here's the latest from CNN's Brian Stelter. Megyn Kelly is not hosting her NBC show today, and I'm told she is unlikely to return later. As for what comes next, uh, Charlotte Clymer has this to say. We are like four days away from Megyn Kelly being named the next White House communications director. Wow. Charlotte, are you a fortune teller girl? The crystal ballness <laughs> of that tweet. Oof. That felt real real. Uh, that felt scary like, real. Yeah, something that could absolutely happen. Well, here's a tweet from Bobby Finger about what may end up being the last episode of Megyn Kelly's show. It's wild that Megyn Kelly just got a standing ovation from her audience for not discovering the racist history of blackface and minstrel shows until her 47th year as a citizen of this country. <laughs> Oh, Megan. Well, Bobby Finger, writer and co-host of Who Weekly, we love that podcast, joins us now. Bobby, good morning. Good morning. Hey there. Okay, so you have followed her show on and off in different ways uh, for the last year. Uh, what inspired you to start uh, following her show in the first place? It was an assignment from my editor at the time. Um, my editor, Kate Drees, was like, we should do something on this. And I was like, what if we just cover it every single day until we get sick of it. And we did. Um, the idea was to cover it until I actually got tickets to go on the show. That took longer than I expected, but eventually I went on the show and that was the end of it. And I never really watched it again until yesterday. Mm. Until yesterday. And you did, yeah, I remember that you were in the audience. They actually put the camera on you, right? Yeah, they put the camera, she gave me a hug. She, she, she sort of twisted me as a, a fan blogger um, because she's, she's herself, yeah. She is herself. Well, set aside her history at Fox News. I wanted to ask, as somebody that has watched the show, certainly more than we have, um, how in line with her show was that blackface segment? I mean, it was, it was so in line with her show that if you told me uh, a year ago that maybe I missed an episode and that she said, oh, Megyn Kelly talked about how blackface is good, that it would have seemed like parody because it was so spot on. Like Megyn Kelly losing her show because she said blackface is good makes complete sense mm. for something on that show. Not only is it a huge mistake on her part, but it's just like a weird, wild rewriting of history. Um, it's her being completely ignorant and it's her saying something that she thinks would make her original audience on Fox News kind of like riled up. Like she's she's speaking to the wrong audience still after all this time. After all but this yeah, time. It, it makes perfect sense. And and I and we're gonna get there's so many components to this, but you know, shout out to Al Roker and Tamron Hall. I refuse to like forget them and not say their names because of course 
they had a higher rated um, hour on the Today Show um, and then, you know, were replaced with Megyn Kelly. And of course, you know, she's getting paid all of this money for a show that has not been nearly as successful as the work they were doing. So I wanted to ask you about that as you were kind of both watching the show and aware of the broader context in which her show existed. What did it feel like watching, you know, just so many of these awkward moments to be polite? Well, at a fundamental level, it was frustrating because I did watch the Today Show before Megyn Kelly. Like it was just sort of what I would have on as white noise in the morning when I was like doing some early morning blogging. Um, and so I did enjoy Tamron and Al. They were the best hour on that show. And then they were sort of abruptly canceled. Um, and you can't, so that, that always made the optics of her hiring very strange and uncomfortable because she was replacing not only the best hour of the show, but two people of color on the show, um, journalists that everyone likes. I don't think there's a person in this country who doesn't like Al Roker. So, so again, when this happened this week, the blackface commentary, it was just like, and then she apologized. That's something that you can't, you can't apologize away when you're 47 years old and you've lived in the United States your entire life, saying that you didn't know blackface was bad. You can't apologize when you're making tens of millions of dollars, so much more than Al and Tamron were being paid. And you can't apologize when you took over this time slot from two people of color. Like, that doesn't make sense. It doesn't You're not allowed to do that. Well said. Here's a tweet about that from Jamel Hill. I am stunned that the woman who said on national television, Santa Claus is white, get over it, did not have the intellectual depth to understand why blackface is wrong. Truly a shocking development. Yeah. Fire tweet there from Jamel. Um, Again, she is uh, midway into a contract worth in total over three years, like $69 million. So let's set aside Megan for a second. What does all of this say about NBC as a company, in your opinion? I think they made a huge mistake, and I think that they've known they made a huge mistake for a really long time. And I, I, don't, know how you, I don't know how you fix it at this point. Um, because it, it, she's probably going to get this money regardless, right? Like, that's, that's how this is going to work out. Um, but I think that they have no idea what they're doing. They have no idea what they're doing. Real quick question before we let you go, Bobby. What would you like to see her do next? I'd like her to take a very long vacation. Mm. All right. I'd really, I, I'd, I'd really prefer not to see her again. <laughs> Bobby, Bobby's done with it. Bobby's, Bobby's done with it. He's yeah. fed up. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Okay, well, uh, as Isaac tweeted earlier this morning, it looks like black African-American Negro Santa came early this year. So let's take I it. I didn't tweet all that. <laughs> I'm sorry, I edited a little bit. I'm sorry. You know, we got to workshop it around here. Uh, let's take it to the timeline. Uh, what else should black Santa bring us for Christmas this year? Uh, what's on your wish list? What about you? I mean, it's Al Roker and Tamron Hall. Yeah. Give them the hour back. Just give them, and, and know that there's so much talent out there. I hope all of these morning shows recognize that they should be tapping in uh, to, to this incredible wealth of talent. Yeah, that's and, available. And almost, them. I'll take it even further. You know, I think of Jay-Z saying like about the Super Bowl, you need me, I don't need you. Mm. You know, what I would, my wish for Black Santa is for Al Roker and Tamron Hall to continue, and they are, having careers that are like so stunning that they can look at NBC and making it, and like laugh, and laugh at, at uh, executives who didn't realize the fortune they had when they had it. 
I thought you were just going to scream reparations. Also uh, we've got a great also show that. for you all today. <laughs> I'm sitting down with Charlie Cox, a.k.a. Daredevil. <laughs> we're going to fight a bunch. Yeah. Fire Tweets is up next. Yeah. Let's keep doing it. Okay. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to break the set. Okay. Don't mind me, I'm tweeting about reparations for Al Roker and Tamron Hall. Go on, sweet. Okay. <laughs> but really, send. Please. It's your, it's your send tweet. Oh, it's mine. I was like, you got it. You That's why the I said one. it's okay, yours. Okay, okay, okay. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Okay. Our first fire tweet comes from It's Darwin. All right. <laughs> I hate when people say, well, it could have been worse. Well, you know what, Barbara? It could have been a hell of a lot better, too. Mm. <laughs> tweet of the day. Tweet of mood. The Tweet of the year. Year, two years. Absolutely. Era? Yeah, could have been, been a hell of a lot better, too. <laughs> Nick the Rapper, you tweeted, seeing a therapist, $100 per hour, telling myself, it'd be like that sometimes. <laughs> Free. Oh, mm, did free. you get that tweet? I, I swear to God, that is that is my approach. That's, that's his, it'd be like that sometimes. Yeah, all the time. It, all the time. It'd be like that all the time. I love this username. Uh, this tweet comes from Pumpkin Spice Boy. <laughs> uh, STEM majors love to talk shit until they're asked to write a paragraph with complete sentences. Woo! Woo! Shout out to engineering majors everywhere. I want to know what Connor Please's major is. That's an English major. That's absolutely. <laughs> All right, you ready to get into it? Uh-huh. Luke, you tweeted, dental hygienist, your teeth and gums are moments from death. Quit your job so you can floss 16 times an hour. I hate you, dentist. Looks good. <laughs> what is that about? What is that about? Because dentists, they're just like, they're realists. Dental hygienist, you know, it's like when you've got a professor, uh -huh. but you've got a TA that's really up in your business. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> See, I was thinking of it like like when you have like a, like nurses are often like really hands on and supportive, and and then the doctor like breezes in and breezes out in like two minutes, and you're like, what? Yeah, exactly. Same thing. Professor T. Oh, we see it. Yeah. We see it. We see the scam. <laughs> we see the scam. Okay, tweet of the day, and I love it so much. You do too. It comes from Gabby. <laughs> All right, let's go. Okay, just told a customer that my last shift is Sunday, and he goes. Do you know who I wish would leave? And he points to another member of the staff. Never seen someone's face drop so fast till I told him that he just pointed at my mother. <laughs> ah, just let that one sink in. Yeah. Oh, what a last minute twist. Yeah, Gabby, are you a producer on Megyn Kelly today? All right, oh. coming up, we're going live from the district <laughs> with Gina Ortez-Jones. It's coming right up, stick around. Whew. Thanks Whew. for watching on your phone. Here's a tweet from AM to DM. Uh, why U.S. Air Force veteran and first-generation American Gina Ortiz Jones is running for Congress? Representation matters. Uh, Gina, of course, was on the show earlier this year. She's back again. Gina, good morning. Hi, good morning. How are you? You're doing well. You're doing well. Thank you so much for coming on the show again. The last time you were on the show, you, you spoke about the importance of representation. You just teamed up with hashtag women rising for this campaign with other veterans running for office. What does it mean to you to be a part of a group of such inspiring women? 
Yeah, you know, we look forward uh, to serving again. I think now more than ever, we know the importance of, of what we've been doing for a long time, which is serving our country and putting country above everything else. We have a record of doing that. And we look forward to doing that on, on issues that matter most. I mean, the number one issue in this district is healthcare. I think smart, healthy kids is a nonpartisan issue. We've got to have leaders though, that are committed to making sure that we get, uh, that we're right on this issue. I look forward to doing that. Okay. We, of course, are just 12 days from Election Day. I'm sure you know that very, very well, uh, that fact. Yes. Um, so I, we wanted to ask you, what are you most concerned about in this home stretch? Yeah, so I actually, yeah, we are in the home stretch. I actually uh, voted earlier this morning. We've got early voting here in Texas. So um, uh, it's I went to go actually vote with a, a friend of mine from middle school. We're just very excited about making sure that we get our district on the right track, our state on the right track, our country on the right track. Um, this is this is a massive district. I'm not sure. I think we talked about it last time, but there's 29 counties. Uh, you know, the other day I woke up in El Paso. I kicked off an event there, and then I ended the day 500 miles on the other side of the district. Um, that's just how massive this district is. So we are making sure that we, um, you know show up everywhere, talk to communities about what's at stake. Um, after this, I'm going to head down to Uvalde and Eagle Pass, which are uh, communities also that are in this district, a little bit closer to the border, um, and want to make sure, again, that, that they know what's at stake and who's ready to fight for them, and that's me. You know, as a black gay man who grew up in Louisville, Texas, just south of Denton, um, I wanted to ask you about your experience as an out queer woman uh, campaigning, as you mentioned, in a huge district uh, in Texas. Yeah, it's, um, you know, I would be honored to be the first out member of Congress from Texas. It's more important I'm not the last. And it's most important that my community is well represented. And so this is a district that is massive. Um, and there's a lot of rural communities uh, that unfortunately feel like they have not been heard from, that they're not well represented. And look, as somebody uh, who knows what it feels like when the rules aren't set up for everybody or don't feel like your voice is heard, you know, I've made a, a point to make sure that I speak uh, to as, as many of, of the communities throughout this district as possible. Everybody's voice is important and our democracy works best when we hear from everyone. And that's, I've made a point to do that throughout my, throughout the campaign. And as I've said, look, show me how you campaign and I'll show you how you'll govern. Um, and it's been important that we hear from everybody to make sure uh, that our policies are, are best informed by everyone's lived experience. Well, let's, let's talk about those voices. Do you feel that the national media understands what Texas voters in those border areas actually want? Well, you know, I, I, what we've tried to do is, is, again, talk about the differences between myself and, and my opponent. You know, there, are, there are choices. They're not just, it's not just Gene Ortiz Jones on the ballot, right? What's on the ballot? People's health care is on the ballot. I'm running against somebody that voted eight times to take away health care protections for people that have a pre-existing condition. In this district, that's over 300,000 people. We're also the most uninsured state in the country. So, you know, healthcare is the number one issue in this district. People either can't afford it today, they are fearful they won't be able to afford it tomorrow, or they physically can't get to it. And so when you talk about, you know, the lived experiences and certainly of our communities on the border, Presidio, Texas is a community that comes to mind. Presidio is right on the border, 5,000 folks. Uh, the whole community is served by two EMS. The nearest hospital is 80 miles away. So, you know, God forbid you're the third person with an emergency because you're going to drive yourself to Alpine to, to get to the hospital. So when we think about not leaving people behind, ensuring all voices are, are heard, you know, we have to think about those experiences as well. And I look forward to investing and in making sure that we have a, a healthcare system that is affordable and accessible to everyone. 
As someone campaigning, of course, in a border state, what do you make of the president and right-wing media's, I would say, um, continued and tactical focus on the caravan? I think first and foremost, yeah, so to, to be clear, you know, for folks that might not know the geography of this district, 40% of the U.S. border with Mexico is in, is in this district. Um, so first and foremost, we have to make sure that, you know, you know Americans are, are, are kept safe. Um, we do, though, need to make sure we have a smart, a strong, and a fair border security policy. Um, and I think, uh, you know, that ensures and uh, make, that requires making sure that our border agents have the resources that they need to keep our, our borders secure. I think long term, we also have to make sure that we are investing in the people and the programs um, that are ultimately key to making sure that, you know, our neighbors to the south are are safe, and those econ those economies are strong. So ultimately, people don't feel like they have to leave. Uh, so there's a there's a long term solution. I'm committed to, make, to working on that in a bipartisan way. Um, you know, Beto O'Rourke has not uh, endorsed you in your race. Um, has that been a factor that's been on your mind? Well, when I am speaking with folks throughout this district, they want to know, um, you know, what I bring to the table. And I talk about my record of public service, 14 years in national security, in and out of uniform. I never asked anybody what party they were with. And it's, it's sometimes still a little weird for me when people ask, ask questions in terms of party because um, I am looking at this as a public servant. You know, 14 years, I never asked anybody what party they were with. It never mattered. What have we been asked to do uh, in the interest of the country? How do we build the team to get it done? And how do we hold ourselves accountable if we fall short of that? So when I'm talking to folks, uh, you know, people want to know uh, bipartisan, bipartisanship has to mean results, right? That's, that's what I'm focused on. That's what I've built my career on. And that's why I'm so excited to be running alongside the other women, uh, female veterans that you highlighted earlier, because that's what we're focused on. And that's, when it, that's what's going to carry the day. All right, but what do you make of the way Beto's run his campaign and what impact do you think it'll have on other Democrats who are running in Texas? I think he's done a, a good job of, of showing up, you know, all throughout the state and, and, and talking about the issues. So, you know, you can't ask for you can't ask for more than that. And, um, you know, we all look very uh, we all look forward to to him having having him as our next senator. All right. Well, Gina Ortiz Jones from the great Lone Star state of Texas. Thank you for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me. Take care. All right. Up next, Daphne Ruben Vega is here. Stay tuned. Tehan Thomas Jr. tweeted, I don't usually listen to fictional podcasts, but the horror of Dolores, Dor Dolores Roach is ridiculously good. POC, gentrification, retribution, murder, basically a woke horror story like Get Out. I listened to all eight episodes in one day. You can too. Well, I didn't do it all in one day. I listened to this podcast in about two days over, uh, I ran to it, I listened to it on the subway. It's so good, and Daphne Rubin Vega, singer, songwriter, actress, and the star of the podcast joins me now. Daphne, thank you so much for coming on. Oh my God, it's my pleasure, thank you for listening. Of course, it is. it was really unlike any experience I'd ever had with a podcast, because I, I don't know, I've talked about it on the show before, I'm a huge podcast junkie, but I'd never listened to a fictional podcast before. Mm -hmm. And it kind of, it makes me think it must have been what it was like before movies, like people sitting around the radio listening to a story. What made you want to get involved in a fictional podcast? And for those of us who haven't heard it yet, can you give like a little, a little brief summary or a little tease? Um, 
the horror of Dolores Roach is, um, well, Aaron Marcus, the writer and director. Oh, that's, that's, what you, that's your question. Yeah. I'm sorry. Um, the horror of Dolores Roach is a story that's like a redux of, um, of Sweeney Todd. Yeah, I didn't realize that until about halfway through. I was like, oh, this is Sweeney Todd. Yes, it's Sweeney Todd. So I am Sweeney, and Bobby Cannavale is sort of um, um, a redux of, of Mrs. Lovett, although it's really its own story in... Um, you know, she gets out of prison after taking the rap for her boyfriend, and um, she comes back to a completely different neighborhood. Uh, and uh, the only thing that she finds is Empanada Loca, which is the only place that is like it used to be. And through a series of um, mishaps, she ends up accidentally on purpose killing people. And then Luis played Genius by Bobby Cannavale, um, sort of puts them in empanadas, and this story is off. Yeah, the story is, I mean, I, I said I listen to it while I run, which is where I listen to most of my podcasts. I definitely had to stop a few times and just, like, skip through because it was grossing me out listening to some of the murder, but... But you still want to eat empanadas. I know, and I still... What's that about? I don't know. I don't know what's wow. wrong with me, right? Okay. I was like, I ended my run, and I was like, I need to go get it. But I think that I think that says a little bit more about me. So one of the things I really liked about the podcast is it's set in Washington Heights, which is just up in New York. And it was so interesting to me, her story of, like you said, going to prison for 16 years and coming back to a neighborhood there. She doesn't recognize anything and she only recognizes one shop, basically one person. Why did you guys inter uh, put that into the story? It was so interesting to me as someone who... You know, I'm not a native New Yorker. And oh, yeah, where are you from? I'm from California originally, so it's it now just... I'm interviewing you. It kind of, yeah, it kind of spoke to me. Well, because, um, you know, it's, it's macabre. It's vulgar. It's huge. And it's um, taking advantage of a sort of what some of us refer to as cultural tourism to a next level so that we can sort of get away with telling stories that are about gentrification, that are about being pushed out of a place where you grew up in, about being an other, you know, about living in New York, about being Latino, being a person of color, about racism, about, you know, sexwasm, about the whole pie in this kind of humorous, um, hot and cold shower kind of way. You know, it's yeah. funny and it's horrific. And, that's like yeah it's one of those things where you know obviously I didn't expect to learn all of this and reflect on all of this listening to the podcast because I thought it was just going to be a horror story but there's so many real cultural well it is just a horror story do you know what I mean yeah it is just a horror story it's um it's a story but it's wonderful so you worked with Aaron Mark on this yes. and it was originally a play that you performed and I believe you played all the characters right it's very very cool so how did you take <laughs> that play and decide to make it a podcast on Gimlet? Well, it, um, you know, Aaron Mark wrote it for me. We embodied it. Mimi O'Donnell, who now um, is the head of scripted content at Gimlet, uh, was the artistic director of the Labyrinth Theater Workshop, where we um, originated the actual theater piece. So. Um, it was really kind of one thing led to another. It was very natural, very organic, um, and the piece lent itself to this. 
Do you know, you're talking about how it seems like it's old style um, radio podcast. It was like we created something that was exactly that. That's exactly what we wanted to have. Yeah, it, it just made me think this is what people must have done before. Yeah. So I can't let you go without talking about rent. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously... It's like the mob. It keeps... Yes. <laughs> so obviously you were the original Mimi and Rent. Obviously. <laughs> obviously. I mean, if you don't know, you should. Yeah. So what is it like being a part of something that has such a huge cultural impact even so many years later? Um, it feels, uh, in a word, wonderful, you know, to, to know that you're involved in something that's going to live beyond you in sort of the best of ways, the most relevant of ways. Certain things can be, you know, um, in style, out of style, trending, not trending, but there's a certain base level of um, importance and understanding and relevance that, relevance, I hate that word, um, that Rent, I think, has that, that, that makes me proud. Cool. We have to end it here. Daphne, thank you so much for joining me. The Horror of Dolores Roach is available now, and it is the perfect podcast for the spooky season. And it's so cool. I definitely recommend you listen to it. Up next, the star of Daredevil, Charlie Cox, is here. This is The Sit Down, and I'm here with Charlie Cox, star of Daredevil. What's going on, man? What's Good up, morning. Man? Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for being on the show. <laughs> uh, so season three, it's out on Netflix right now. Yep. Uh, at the end of The Defenders, Matt Murdock, Daredevil, he's crushed. Right. Liter like emotionally, literally, <laughs> yeah, he's yeah. just crushed. And a building falls on him. And a building falls on him. Yeah. How does he come back from that? Uh, yeah, it's a long road. Um, you have to watch season three <laughs> to <laughs> discover. Yeah, look, um, you know, we... Um, we the, sh the new showrunner of DD um, kind of inherited that storyline from mm -hmm. the Defenders. Um, and uh, what I thought was really cool, what Eric did, um, was really embrace that, that idea that this, you know, that, that this building has fallen on, on Matt, literally. Mm -hmm. um, and, but also with all the events of the end of season two and, and the Defenders, how is that, what is that, what have all those things meant for him in terms of his spiritual life and his mental well-being and all that kind of stuff? So. It's one of the reasons why I love Daredevil as a character, just the Catholicism of it. He is, I right. like to say, the most Catholic superhero. <laughs> yeah. um, how do you as an actor kind of approach that internal struggle? That, well, that's actually one of the... So there were so many things about this job that when I got it, I was like, wow, I have to do a lot of research. Yeah. Like, I have no idea what it's like to be a lawyer. <laughs> I have no idea what it's like to play blind. Uh -huh. I had to do an American accent. Right. Or the physical stuff. I'd never been to the gym in Ever. my life. Never a gym. I ran and stuff, but I'd never actually lifted weights. All right. Well, you made like up that. the last time, but yeah, okay, yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so there's all this stuff. But the one thing I was like, okay, I'm pretty sure I got that was the Catholicism because I'm Catholic, you know? <laughs> You're so, like, okay, yeah. that one, so, that one I can do. The one I can just like let I can I can rely on what I know yeah. to, to to be the case, which is funny because I get a lot of questions about how did you get into the the guilt and the sin of it. I'm like, just for free. Yeah. <laughs> You're like I was raised with it. Is that something you find yourself in, like in your personal life? Like there's this kind of a set of morals, a set of codes. Yeah, are you as uh, internally strifeful as Matt Murdock? No, not quite. <laughs> um, I, yeah, it's funny when you grow. You know, I grew up in you know in in the Catholic faith, and and uh, so it's hard to know where it, you know when you when that happens to you at a young age, when you're going to church at a young age, it's hard to know how much you 
how much of your kind of moral compass is from is from that, mm-hmm. and how much of it is from your parents and you know the the friends that you surround yourself with and that, those kind of things. So, I do, it's hard, that's kind of a blurry line for me. But um, uh, yeah, I don't think uh, I you know you try to you know like always try and do the next right thing and try not to hurt. Uh, yourself and others and yeah. stuff like that, but probably not to the same degree as Matt Murdock. Try, try and walk in the light a little bit. Let's talk about that hurting others, though. Yeah, yeah. Daredevil is just famous for these super long fights. Okay, let's just say hurting, yeah. hurting good guys. Yeah, yeah. Try not to hurt good guys. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so in season three, there is an 11 minute, yeah. one take yeah. fight scene. Yeah, one shot. One shot. Yeah. yeah. So what goes into that? Um, well, look, it's so a lot of preparation, mm-hmm. um, a lot of preparation behind the scenes. We, you know, we on this TV show, we're we're under a real strict schedule, you mm-hmm. know. So we're we're I think we're doing an episode, and one hour episode in eight to nine days with action in it. And when you when you put action into the into the mix, it's a whole new ball game because you can shoot if you've got two people having a coffee, having a conversation over a coffee mm-hmm. that's fourteen pages long. You can do that in a day. Mm-hmm. You can't do you can do a page of action in a day, maybe a page and a half. Um, so, and for this scene, when they kind of decided they were going to try and attempt it in one shot, um, uh, they the only way we were ever going to be able to do that is if we gave up a day of filming, which is very expensive. Wow. They gave up a whole day of filming um, to rehearse it and rehearse with the whole crew, with the cameraman, the the sound operator, the sound, the boom operator, mm-hmm. myself, the stunt. Team, we all went up to that this prison up in Staten Island somewhere and spent a day just rehearsing it. And then we came back the following day and we and we had a day to shoot it. There was um, no moment where the director was like, "Just turn on the cameras. They won't know that they're act- like just during the rehearsal." <laughs> no, because I wasn't in costume. Really. All right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but um, yeah, I, I have to be honest. Like I didn't, I didn't think we could do it when I read when I when they showed me what we were trying to achieve with all the moving parts and all the people, the amount of people in that and. Uh, you know the, the the effects as well, the lighting effects, and we got we got people lighting uh, toilet rolls and throwing them in. You know, I just was like, it's too much. We'll have to we'll have to piece it together in, in the edit. But but you guys got it. Well, we did re- two we did two good takes before lunch that were really good. Uh-huh. We were like, and we had a couple of full starts, and then we there was this moment where, do we go again? Have we got it? And then we're like, well, let's go to lunch and have a think about it. And we went to lunch, and they were like, right, we're going to try one more time. And then we came back from lunch and we did one more and it just all came together. And that was the that one. That was the one, did you, yeah. Just honestly, I gotta ask. Did you ever mess, like is there ever like everyone's all set to go, everyone's in their places and like you just messed up a little bit and they have to restart from the beginning you're just like son of a, or do you just kind of keep going through it? With the, with the one we used? Any, or anyone. Oh yeah, there's ones, that we, we had ones that don't work. <laughs> yeah. Like if you, the, the tricky thing about an action sequence that you're trying to do without any cuts is if you, if you misplace a punch, uh-huh. like it doesn't, it's called selling a punch. Okay. If, if I clearly don't hit you mm-hmm. right now, but Appreciate you as, yeah, yeah, but you as the, as the stunt performer pretend to be hit, uh-huh. like your head goes back, that's, that, you can't use that, that's ruined it. That's the end. There's, because there's one moment where, you could, where you've broken that, that you know, spe- it, would, it spe- doesn't, yeah. The spell is broken. If you miss and the stunt performer doesn't, Pretend to be hit, yeah. and it plays as a miss. Then like the character miss, it's fine. But, but, but so it's the smallest little thing goes wrong, and you can't. You know, there's a couple of things in our t- in this take where we, me and Brewster, Chris Brewster is my stunt double. Uh-huh. Um, we're doing what they call Texas switches. Okay. So we never cut the camera, but 
I I I get thrown in, into into a door and and then, and he then it's jumps him in. and then he gets he gets thrown over a over a a chair and then I crawl out from it. So we switch about three or four times. But there's one particular switch which is amazing where he's being beaten up. They throw him on the ground and then the camera sees his foot kick one guy and then he retracts his foot and then the foot comes in again. But now it's my foot. So I'm, there's a point where I'm and if the camera sees both. Two right feet. That, <laughs> it's that's over, incredible. You know? Yeah, it's pretty cool. Do you man. ever wish you could do that in real life? Just like you, yeah, could, like, yeah, yeah. You could just move well, right now. With all just... the prison fights that I'm in, you <laughs> you know? Know, yeah, be really helpful. Uh, one last thing about the show, man. Uh, Fisk is back. All right. What, Fisk is back. What's it like to be acting with Vincent D'Onofrio again? What's it like? Uh, how have your characters' relationships changed? Yeah, you know what's really fun is uh, first of all I can't say enough great things about Vincent D'Onofrio. We I feel very very lucky that he is so enthused by the show and loves being on it and wants to come back. I mean it was amazing we got him for season one, but for, to have him come back for season two and now as a as a lead in season three um, is a tr I think a just elevates the show a huge amount, but also is a tremendous testament to the quality of what we're trying to do, um, the fact that he wants to keep keep um, being involved. Um, what was really fun about this season is that, uh, you know, in season one we had to, there's such, a, it, there's such an iconic kind of animosity between these two characters in the comics. Mm. And in season one we had to kind of find that mm. and build on it. Whereas in season three, as soon as Matt in episode two finds out that Fisk is out of prison, there's just this intense hatred and anger. Yeah. And it's, now it's felt both ways. So we got to start the season at that level and then build from there, and so it gets pretty. Uh, and just keep heightening it. Right, right, right. I, I, and again, I think you guys do a fabulous yeah. job with He's it. amazing, isn't he unbelievable? He's so, I yeah. mean, you, the show is just fantastic. I do, I do gotta ask, Dark Gritty World of Daredevil, mm. you've been it for a long time now, three years, three seasons. More going. than that, I think four. Yeah, wild. Well, three seasons, but we yeah, did the yeah, Defenders, four, so. Yeah, yeah, Do you ever miss like, more fun. You want to get back to the world of Stardust a little bit. Yeah, yeah. get back to the so more mu fun musical stuff. theater. Yeah, jazz hands. Yeah, come on. Yeah, man. be good, man. That'd be great. You know, look, I, I, I've, uh, I wouldn't wish anything else. You know what I mean? I feel so lucky to have this job. I love doing it. There will, you know, it takes its toll on your body. Uh -huh. You know, but there will. I know there will come a time if I'm lucky enough to continue to be working as an actor in 10, 15 years. The likelihood that I'm going to be playing characters that have action mm. to participate in is probably unlikely. So, um, so I'm really happy that I've got this experience to have it right now. But yeah, there's a there's a you know there are, there are moments when it's you know it's December or it's February and I'm in spandex on a rooftop at 4 a.m. and it's so cold. And I feel like I can't, if I don't keep moving, if I stay still for too long, the, the suit begins to freeze a little bit. And I have, you know, I, there are days where I, where, where I can, I, my mind goes to a place of what I wouldn't give to be doing friends right now. <laughs> <laughs> or like in a well-lit, well-heated yeah, theater. Yeah. Well, listen, man, I'm pulling yeah. for Stardust too, all right? I'm Stardust just, I'm gonna too. throw that out there. Yeah. I'm just gonna put that out there. Charlie, thank you, thank you so, so much for joining us. Too, yeah, really yeah. appreciate it. Daredevil season three is streaming now on Netflix. We stayed away from spoilers, so you should definitely enjoy it. Up next, we're throwing it back to our favorite paperback books of the 80s and 90s. Don't go away. Yeah, man, that was awesome. Ariana Rebellini, books editor here at BuzzFeed. Here's a tweet from Maris Kreisman. My generation didn't grow up with Harry Potter, but we did have Sweet Valley High, so we are all prepared to act if anyone undergoes a severe personality change triggered by a motorcycle accident. 
Joining me now to talk about Sweet Valley High, The Babysitter's Club, and all the teen fiction of the 80s and 90s that shaped us is Gabrielle Moss, whose new book is called Paperback Crush. Hi, Gabrielle. Hello. Thank you so much for coming and joining thank, us. Thank you so much for giving me an excuse to talk about psychotic personality changes <laughs> in identical twins yeah, from motorcycle Yeah, and accidents. it's a great shirt, I have thank to say. Thank you. I heard that you were supposed to wear jewel tones on TV. <laughs> And who is more of a jewel than the Wakefields? Perfect, absolutely. Just kidding, they're monsters. <laughs> so let's get into it. Um, Maris's tweet talks about like how these books really deeply affected us. Yes. Do you have a memory of reading any of these specific books when you were a teen? Uh, my biggest memory of reading any of the books uh, that I discuss in Paperback Crush would be um, I read Caroline Cooney's The Faith on the Milk Carton uh -huh. when I was about 10 or 11 years old. And you know that's a time in your life where you're sort of starting to be like, oh, you know, my parents, like, how are they even really my family? <laughs> and um, that book is about uh, a girl who finds out that she's been kidnapped and raised with a, uh, a fake family. And so I was reading that, and I was like, what if my, what if my parents don't understand? Because they're not my parents. <laughs> right. They are my parents. We, we figured that we out. We did figure that out. Yeah, it's a scary concept, though. And so when you were revisiting this book, rewriting, did you find any, like, plot lines or themes that you realize now are actually pretty problematic? <laughs> Oh, God, yeah. yeah. I mean, a lot of stuff, um, especially stuff I loved. I was a huge Sweet Valley girl growing up, and um, all of that's a mess. Um, <laughs> you know, I was. it was more interesting for me, um, more surprising, rather, to find like that there was some good stuff mixed in in all these series books uh, among the mountains of problematic <laughs> stuff, you know. Yeah. Sweet Valley High are especially problematic. They're always like, we're so rich and so white and so straight and so thin. Right, and everyone can relate. Yeah, <laughs> you know? that's really relatable. Um, yeah, and so, I mean, on that, like, what did you find, what are some books that were kind of ahead of their time, you think? Um, the Babysitter's Club was absolutely uh, ahead of its time, in, um, especially in its suggestion that kind of you should follow your passions and your dreams and, you know, women are empowered to start businesses. You know, I don't want to, I don't, I don't have the necessary degrees to say that the Babysitter's Club is, has played a role in um, how a lot of women of our generation approach work, but I kind of think it did. Yeah, I mean, I feel like it did, for I, sure. Uh, and your book goes through different themes, and Babysitter's Club, obviously, that kind of friendship and then frenemies. Can you tell us a little bit about the themes you discovered? Um, I found that most of the books could kind of break down into they're either about love, friendship, school, family, or, you know, spooky-dooky stuff. Yeah. Um, and it was very interesting, I think, um, you know, books for older readers were kind of romance and a little more traditional. Uh, when they started publishing a lot of books for younger readers from middle grade, you know, you can't have romance in or that much romance in books for 10-year-olds. So they kind of substituted in friendship, these very passionate, intense friendships. And I think that molded our generation completely, just you know, the idea of friends as family, which you see in Babysitter's Club, in Sleepover Friends, in yeah. any of this stuff. Oh, I love Sleepover Friends, <laughs> such a weird one. And so it's actually funny because you brought up the spooky books. I feel like the most famous authors that we think of now, R.L. Stein, Christopher Pike, were in the horror section. Yeah. What do you think is about those scary books that compels us still? I have been wondering that myself, because people do have the strongest memories of that. I do wonder if perhaps your memory of being frightened sticks with you more than your memory of being warmly comforted or challenged to grow yeah. by the Babysitter's Club. So uh, I think that might have something to do with it. Yeah, yeah. And so I was wondering if you have any thoughts kind of to close it up. If you think YA has changed today and 
and how it's changed, how it's grown? Oh God, why it's changed a lot. You know, um, in 1989, the idea of an adult reading one of these YA books was like cuckoo bananas. <laughs> and uh, you know, adults are a huge sec section of the YA market now. Uh, so that's changed. It's gotten more sophisticated. It has gotten, thank God, more diverse. Um, yes, yeah. Um, you know, I do think that these books, you know, they're not just not nonsense candy we read because Harry Potter wasn't around yet. You know, they did play uh, their role, but this stuff now is, you know. Yeah, it's, it's, it's growing. It's better. Yeah, <laughs> it's better. Well, thank you so much for coming, Gabrielle. Um, Paperback Crush comes out October 30th. Up next, Isaac and Saeed are reading your tweets. Welcome back. Uh, Rachel, hey, Girlfield, you tweeted, did not expect the Daredevil interview was going to be about Catholic guilt, but here we are. Joke's uh, on you, girl, because I did. <laughs> <laughs> I know Isaac, and I've watched the show. So. You're like, There's, well, that, yeah. that was the missing component. Is yeah. I did not know he was raised Catholic. I didn't know he was Catholic. So we so were just asking that question yeah. in general, so right. to have him be like, <laughs> Oh yeah, that was great. That was, was really good. So nice. He is a. I think somebody else on the timeline called Charlie Cox a ray of sunshine. He absolutely was. Use the word sweet to describe yeah, him. Absolutely, I like that he was trying to swing on me though. Oh, the sunshine that like <laughs> I feel like packs a punch. Yeah. All right. Well, listen. We asked you what else do you hope Black Santa brings us for Christmas this year, and Joe Lee says. At this point, I'll settle for a bottle of good gin from Black Santa. This oh. year is a damn mood. It's a it's a mood, it's an emotion, it's a wave. That's <laughs> fair, Jolie. I think that's absolutely fair. Phew. Low bar, low yeah. bar this Christmas. But I gotta tell you, Jolie, shout out to Pothos plants. You know I love my panic gardening and uh, they're very hardy <laughs> and the plants I've been buying because of stress to news uh, scandals have been a nice way to balance so that me drinking tequila isn't the only way I'm That's coping good. with the news. It's like, Are the plants it's in like the water the yet? plant, water yourself. Water the plant, water yourself. <laughs> Take a break. You know. are, is, are the plants in the bathroom yet? Not yet. His apartment is becoming a jungle. <laughs> it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Okay. Uh, you had an AM2DM guest nomination. Kirsten, you said this. I love it. Al Roker should come on AM2DM. And I saw several of you saying this. Uh, me, Princess Slayer, Rachel Hey Girlfriend, Picks, Maven, nominate. You have a quorum <laughs> there. I love it. We, of course, would be honored to have Al Roker and Tamron Hall on the show anytime we would move and, mountains. And here's like the thing. We did, a, we did like a social yeah, video yeah. that shouted out Al Roker. Al Roker, sorry, and he retweeted it. I love so it. So he's aware of the show. What happens? Also, yeah. we wanted to say happy birthday ahead of time to Pix Maven. Your birthday is Saturday. I'm going to be off tomorrow, and then it's going to be Saturday, but happy birthday. Happy birthday. Happy, happy early birthday, birthday from us again. Happy birthday. Are we legally allowed to sing the happy birthday? I think now we happy are. Birthday to, we don't have time, though, but yeah, happy birthday. Happy birthday, <laughs> Seriously, you've been watching the show for yeah. a year. We absolutely love you, and we absolutely love your contributions to the discussion yeah. on the timeline. We're a year into our friendship with you, so we wish you the best. Um, thank you to all of our guests. <laughs> Remember the bomb scare? Woo! Is that still? Oh, we'll find out when we check our phones. Tasneem Nasrula, Blake Montgomery, Bobby Finger. Bobby Finger, girl, you did that, honey. What did you do? That. <laughs> Gina Ortiz-Jones, Daphne Rubin-Vega, Charlie Cox, Ariana Rebellini, and Gabrielle Moss. Thank you all. That was such a great conversation. Yeah. Saeed's going to get an early start on his weekend Bye. tomorrow, but I will be back with Katie Nantopoulos. See you tomorrow at 10 a.m. Katie will be right here. Keep, keep walking. No, you keep oh, walking. Bye. Don't come back. Talk later. to you later. I'm out of here. Katie's going to be here. We'll see you tomorrow at 10 a.m.